Ezekiel 36, 26. It says, I will give you, this is the Lord speaking, he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is a prophecy that God spoke to the people of Israel about the restoration that he would bring to them. But there's also the promise here of the new relationship that he would establish with us through Jesus Christ. When we receive salvation through Jesus Christ, God gives us a new heart, a new nature, and he puts his own spirit in us. The Holy Spirit is in us to move us to follow him. It's it's an amazing thing for us to consider, and we will be talking about this in our Bible study today. We are going to be in the letter of Romans again. So if you have your Bible, you can make your way over to the book of Romans. And we're going to begin looking at Romans chapter 8 today, which is a favorite chapter for many Bible readers. Chapter 8 of Romans sits right in the middle of this letter of 16 chapters. And it is the heart of the letter, both literally and figuratively. And hopefully as we get into chapter 8, you will see that to be the case. We want to begin in verse 1 of Romans chapter 8. Verse 1, it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's money, as they say. This first verse states one of the most important truths in all of the Christian faith, and it establishes the foundation upon which everything else rests that is said in this chapter. Looking back over all that we have been told in the first seven chapters of Romans, that's what the word therefore means. Therefore, consider what we have been talking about in these first seven chapters of Romans. We have this amazing summarizing truth found here in Romans 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? Those who are in Christ Jesus are people who have received salvation through Jesus Christ. People who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and what He's done for them. They believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died as a sacrifice for their sins, was raised back to life on the third day. They are trusting in the righteousness that God gives to them rather than any righteousness of their own. They have not trying to justify themselves. They are accepting the justification that God gives them through Christ. Those who are in Christ Jesus are those that Paul has been talking about throughout the first seven chapters of Romans. Now, if that describes you, then you are in Christ Jesus, and that means that there is now no condemnation for you. What does no condemnation mean? It means that there are no charges against the person who has received salvation through Jesus Christ. There are no judgments against them. They are considered not guilty. They have received a full pardon from God. 
Now, this is not just referring to our past sins. This is the state that we are in now. We are in the state of no condemnation. I think oftentimes people will think, well, you know, when I received Christ, all my past sins were forgiven. But now that I've received Christ and I, I have salvation, I, it's, it's up to me to keep my mess together. It's like I got launched in the boat and it's been pushed off out from the shore, but now I have to paddle it. No, that's not true. That's not true. No condemnation is not something that comes and goes as the moral quality of our life goes up and down, as our behavior is better or worse. If no, condemn, if no condemnation was something that comes and goes based on how good we are, we would not have much to hope in. Since we're still fighting against our sinful nature and it gets the better of us at times in spite of our best efforts, doesn't it? If we were to all reflect carefully over how we have behaved in the past week, we would all have to confess that we have sinned. We have failed to live up to the ideal of Jesus Christ at least once. And for most of us, we would have to confess that we have failed just in the last 24 hours, more than once. In fact, we may have failed within the last hour. If we're only not condemned when we are living a Christ-honoring good life, then it would mean that we are regularly going to be from a state of salvation to a state of not salvation. We are saved and we are not saved. And we're hoping, we would be hoping that at the moment that we die or the moment that Jesus comes back, we are on our best behavior. So we will gain entrance into eternal life. There's no hope in that kind of existence. And thankfully, that's not what the Bible teaches. It is, unfortunately, the way too many Christians live their life and think about what their life is. See, as hard as it may be to believe, because it's so amazing, our state of no condemnation is something that we can trust in at all times at all times. You are not condemned right now. Why is there no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? It says in verse 2, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set us free from the law of sin and death. The law of gravity keeps us grounded to the surface of the earth. I mean, we can jump as hard as we can trying to launch ourselves into the air and overcome gravity, but it pulls us right back down to the ground, doesn't it? Unless, of course, we had some kind of external assistance, like maybe a jetpack. 
Well, the law of sin and death that he's talking about here is kind of like the law of gravity in that it is a law, a principle, a rule, an established certainty. This is how the word law is being used here. The person who sins dies. The person who sins is under the judgment and condemnation of holy God. This is a rule, an established certainty for every human being. But those who are in Christ Jesus have been set free from this law of sin and death. We're under a new law, the law of the Spirit who gives life. Paul contrasts these two laws in Romans 6 and 7, which we looked at last time. Under the law of sin and death, we were slaves to a master who led us down a path of self-destruction, ever-increasing wickedness, and death, we were told. Under the law of the Spirit, we serve a master who loves us, who's leading us in his good ways, who's changing us to be like himself, and who has promised us a glorious future with him forever. The one law leads to death. The other law gives eternal life. Verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul is now using that same word law in a different way than he was just in verse 2. In verse 2, law means a principle, a rule, an established certainty. Here in verse 3 and 4, law means the law of God given through Moses and what we have in the Old Testament portion of our Bible as the salvation system of the Old Covenant. This is a good spot to just make a quick side note about words when reading and studying the Bible. We need to remember that words can have different meanings depending on how they're used in a sentence. The word law is a great example of this right here. Paul is using the same word Two different ways in verses 2 and 3. If we miss that, we'll be confused about what he's saying. And it's one of the reasons why it always makes me nervous when people talk about doing word studies where they'll look up a word and they'll follow that same word throughout the Bible and then they'll just start lacing these different occurrences together to come up with some grand truth in their mind. Don't do that. You need to make sure every single time you see that word, if it's being used the same way every time, and only loop together the ones that are being used in the same way. It always raises red flags when I hear someone go, well, you know, this word is always in the Bible always means no. Not necessarily. It doesn't always mean. Here in these two verses, the word law means two very different things. So we need to be careful in our Bible study to not mindlessly just assume a word always means the same thing. 
So the law, in verse 3, the salvation system of the Old Covenant, which was based on carefully following the rules that God gave through Moses, is powerless to overcome sin and provide salvation for us. Why is it powerless to overcome sin and provide salvation for us? Because it depends on us. It's powerless because it depends on us. We don't have the willpower to overcome sin and remain perfectly faithful to the requirements of the law. Our flesh, our sinful nature, derails us, constantly undermining our efforts, making it impossible for us to do it. If you've tried to be good for an extended period of time, then you know this to be true. It's easily observable in our own life. None of us are able to be good enough, long enough, to deserve salvation. That's the brutal truth. So what's the answer for getting out of this hopeless state? God doing for us what we can't do ourselves. Like it says here, God sent His own Son, Jesus Christ, in the likeness of sinful flesh, in our likeness, to be a sin offering for us. And so God condemned our sin in His own Son, Jesus Christ, and gave us in exchange the perfect righteousness of His Son. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And now those who are in Christ, those who have received salvation, have a new reality that we live in, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The next verses explain for us what this means, to live according to the flesh versus live according to the Spirit. So in verse 5, it says, Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Living according to the flesh is compared and contrasted here with living according to the Spirit. So there are two different ways to live. Those who are living according to the flesh or their sinful nature, have their minds set on what their sinful nature wants, desires, is inclined toward, is drawn to. The person's way of thinking and doing things follows their sinful nature. The mind governed by the sinful nature is death, Paul says. He talked about this same idea back in Romans 6 and 7 too, when he said serving sin leads to death. Same idea. And in contrast, those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit of the Lord wants, desires, is inclined toward, is drawn to. This person's way of thinking and doing things follows the will of the Spirit of God. Think of it this way. Jesus... We we're told in verse 3, he came in the likeness of us in our sinful flesh to save us. 
we now who have been saved are to live in the likeness of Jesus. Living out the will of God, following the ways of God, living in obedience to the Father. So the mind that is governed by the Spirit is life and peace. And Paul talked about this same idea back in Romans 6 and 7 when he said, serving God leads to life. Paul expresses this contrast between the two ways of living in his letter to Galatians like this in Galatians 6 and verses uh, Galatians 6 verses 7 and 8 when he said don't be deceived God cannot be mocked a person reaps what he sows whoever sows to please their flesh their sinful nature from the flesh will reap destruction whoever sows to please the spirit the spirit of God from the spirit will reap eternal life Verse 7, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. The way of thinking of the sinful nature is actually hostile toward God. It's at odds with God. It's an enemy of God. It hates God. It doesn't submit to God's law. It doesn't recognize God's authority. It And interestingly, it says it can't submit to God's law because it is so diametrically opposed to God in his ways. I remember my own mindset before I became a believer, before I became a follower of Jesus Christ and I had received salvation. I was hostile toward God's ways. I I didn't want to submit to God's authority. And given the state of mind that I was in at the time, I couldn't either, even if I wanted to. And, and, And there was no question that I was not pleasing to God at the time, nor did I care if I was pleasing to Him or not. I didn't want anything to do with God. But when I was born again by the Spirit of the Lord, my mind was radically changed. I mean, my attitude toward God was completely different. One moment I was hostile toward God and His ways, and the next moment I loved God and His ways. And this is what's described in these next verses. Verse 9 says, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Paul reminds us that those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and what He has done for us, they have been born again by the Spirit of God and they have received salvation. And they're no longer, it says, in the realm of the flesh. We are now in the realm of the Spirit. We are no longer under the authority of the sinful nature. We are now under the authority of God's Spirit. Those who belong to Christ, who have received salvation through Jesus Christ, have the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, living in them. Imagine that. The Holy Spirit is living in you. But if Christ is in you, by the Spirit... The Holy Spirit is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, 
He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. If Christ is in you, and we know he's in us, if we've received salvation, you know that Christ is in you. Then even though our bodies are going to die because of sin, the Spirit of God gives us life because of the righteousness God has given us. We've learned that to be given righteousness by God is the same as us being justified by God, and it's the same as receiving salvation from God, different ways of expressing the same truth. Paul does this a lot in the book of Romans. Just like Paul uses, he uses different phrases and terms to mean the same thing sometimes, like here. And he also uses the same words to mean different things sometimes, like we saw when he was using the word law in verses 2 and 3 a moment ago. That's why we need to read very carefully to follow what he's saying. And it says, and further, because the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in us, the Holy Spirit is in us, he's going to resurrect our bodies like Jesus' body was resurrected. The Holy Spirit inside of us is our guarantee of our future resurrection. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if we live according to the flesh, we will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Therefore, uh, again, this is one of those big collecting words. He's saying, considering the amazing stuff that God has done for us through Jesus Christ, giving us salvation, removing condemnation from us, bringing us to life spiritually, giving us a new mind that desires to do His will, having the Holy Spirit living in us, knowing that we are going to be resurrected like Jesus, says, Brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. That Greek phrase translated into English is that we have an obligation. It's sometimes translated into your English Bible as we are debtors or we are indebted. Obviously, he says, our, our obligation is obviously not to the flesh, our sinful nature. As we've already seen, living according to the sinful nature is death. Verse 6, there's nothing good produced in our life when we are living according to our sinful nature. Our obligation is to live according to the Spirit. And in that case, we're to put to death the thinking and doing of our sinful nature. We're to put to death the thing that's producing death. Our sinful nature. As we've, we've learned, both through what is taught here in Romans and through personal experience, our sinful nature, it doesn't just automatically fade away. 
when we receive salvation. It requires that we take an active role in putting to death its thinking and doing, aided by the Holy Spirit who is in us growing the new nature of Jesus. Peter expresses it this way in 1 Peter 2.11 when he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and, stra and strangers or foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Abstain from sinful desires. Stay away from what your sinful nature wants and desires. It wages war against your soul. Do you remember the struggle that Paul described in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 32? That struggle going on between our sinful nature and our new Jesus nature. Our sinful nature is hostile toward God, told us in verse 7. It's in conflict with God and the new life that he's growing in us. It needs to be killed. It needs to be put to death. It needs to be denied life. And we're to take an active role in doing that. Verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. You might remember in the latter half of Romans chapter 6, we looked at it last time. Paul talks about how believers used to be slaves to sin, but we have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God instead, and the benefit that we now reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. Paul now shows us that our relationship with God is actually far more amazing than even that. The Spirit that we have received, the Holy Spirit who is in us now, doesn't make us slaves, he says, living in fear again like we did when we were slaves to sin, living in fear of God's judgment and condemnation, fearing our fate, knowing that we have not done enough good to earn the favor of a holy God. Instead, the Spirit that we have received has brought about our adoption as sons and daughters of God. Now, it's common in everyday conversation in our culture to refer to all people as God's children. And all people are children of God in the sense that all people have been created by God and all people are loved by God in a general way. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's saying something very different from that. Paul is saying that the people who come to Christ in faith, who receive salvation, are given a new, radically new relationship with God. We are no longer merely beings that God has created. We have become God's very own precious, beloved children, His sons and daughters, enjoying an, in, 
and inheriting the full rights and privileges that come along with being his sons and daughters. And it says, and by him, the Holy Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. That word Abba, it's an Aramaic word which was used by Jewish children to address their father. Jesus is recorded to have used this word when he was addressing the Father when praying in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he would be arrested before being crucified the next day in Mark chapter 14. Some suggest that an English equivalent for Abba might be the word Daddy, although some scholars think that's not quite right either. In any case, the idea is that of intimate personal relationship, like what a son or a daughter would have with their father who they love and trust completely. This relationship that the Holy Spirit has established for us with God as his sons and daughters is one of tremendous intimacy and trust. It's not a formal standoffish kind of thing God has adopted us as his precious children who he warmly welcomes into his big, strong, protective, loving arms. We're not children as a term. In a general sense, we are literally God's children adopted as his children. And it says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The Holy Spirit not only makes us God's children, but he has also blessed us with this inward knowledge in our own spirit that this is true, that we are God's children. We're going to stop there today. And I want to close with the same uh, passage that we read a portion of last time from 1 John 3. I love the way John expresses this profound truth. When he says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Children of God, let us pray. Father, what an amazing thing you have done for us. You have made us your children. Jesus is our brother. When we pray, Father, we're talking to our Father, our Dad. Lord, we ask that you would grow in our mind the, uh, an appreciation for who we are, for whose we are, what you have done for us.
who you have made us into and who you're making us into and where we're going, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.